grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. I planned uh, to do John chapter 1 way back in like uh, January of this year. I said, uh, I'm looking forward to doing John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is really a theology of Christmas. And we're going to spend three weeks in John leading up to Christmas. Then we'll spend one week in 1 John. Uh, and then we'll have our Christmas season. And we'll get back in John's writings in the book of Revelation in the new year. So we're going to do a lot of John here over the next year together. But um, as we go in here, let me give thanks to Steve Lindemeyer and A.J. Rankin. Weren't they great? Uh, weren't you challenged? Uh, man, I got to tell them to not try so hard because, man, when they get up here and they bless the church, let me tell you what great men of God these guys are uh, in the way that they think and plan and prepare and uh, really help to lead our church forward. So then you, you get them in the pulpit, man, they just, they do great work. Steve was ministering to me and my kids. We did the hand illustration of how we do the, uh, learn the word around the table and uh, AJ teaching on money. Boy, that, that gets in your business, doesn't it? Don't you hate that? Quit it already. Gosh. Uh, so let me, I just want to give thanks to them, giving, giving me a break to be out of the pulpit. Uh, I need about, when I'm out of the pulpit, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of going. And when I'm out, I need about a week just to get out of fifth gear and kind of go fifth, fourth, three, two. And that gets about Thursday of that first week. So taking two weeks is really good for my heart and soul. I just get to read and take a break and listen to Jesus and pray. You know, not like I don't pray, but, uh, you know, at more extended times of just rest and reflection. So it's really good for me. I told these guys, I'm so thankful for them being able to uh, step in. So. We are in good hands uh, when I'm not here, that's for sure. Uh, number two, this week we had a memorial uh, for a man named Bill Beverly, who uh, I and a lot of our pastoral staff didn't know personally. A.J. Rankin had a chance to meet him before he passed, but he lived to the age of 100. You may or may not have gotten that email this week. He was the oldest member of Citadel Square up to that point. He taught Sunday school here at Citadel Square for 31 years. Uh, a man who, as we stood at his graveside and for his memorial, his life, uh, you could feel his life in the lives of those people who were gathered. You could hear the stories of the word of God that were like fireworks in their eulogies about this man who left a legacy of faithfulness and Christian hope and love and patience and steadfastness to the word of God and the spirit of God. So, uh, you know, some of the folks as we stood at his grave there said, you know, it's a tragedy for, for men and women to die young, but this guy made it to 100. Let's rejoice and let's party. Uh, everybody had a sense of joy that he had run the race with perseverance before him. So we laid him to rest this week. If you remember his family in your prayers, you can read his um, obituary online. We sent that out to all of our church members. You can find that either at STIRS or in the email that we sent out. So please be in prayer for them. There will be, we had a somewhat of a socially distanced burial during that time. Everybody masked up and out uh, at Round Rivers Avenue in North Charleston there. Uh, but there will be a memorial for him coming in the new year somewhere. We're working on those dates to uh, figure that out as we get through this COVID and holiday season. So that's also going on. All right. John chapter one. Y'all there? 2020 has been a weird year, would you agree? But something uh, has been very encouraging to me. Uh, every time I get up here, when it gets to the fall season, and I get so excited for fall and the changing of the season, and I make the fall joke in Charleston, and it doesn't hit because fall still isn't here, 
uh, and my grass is still green and getting mowed. It's just annoying, uh, but that's part of what it means to live in the South. But uh, I read an article probably a month or so ago about the changing of the seasons, and this author was writing with hope uh, in saying that regardless of how unstable and uncertain 2020 has been, both politically or economically or uh, from a health standpoint, and wearing masks and all of that has been, been unstable. The earth continues to spin, and we continue to go around the sun, and the seasons come with surprising regularity. Do they not? That the Christmas season is here. And what I wanted to do is we began the, the pandemic, and we were socially distanced. I said, we need some good theology, and we went through the book of Galatians. Well, as we are now still in the midst of this pandemic and whatever is going on, we need to frame our hearts and minds with theology yet again, and we're going to do that with the book of John. The book of John gives you and I anchors in the Christian life. The Christian's life is founded upon these truths of God that serve to inform and create these anchor points for us in terms of God and man and sin and redemption and hope and joy and peace. All of those things become anchor points for the Christian that we latch on in our mental thinking. We latch on with our emotions to these things that we can trust in the word of God. John, when he writes the, uh, his gospel, is different than the other synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all capture the story somewhat differently. Matthew was written to the Jew to talk about the kingdom, and you see Matthew open his gospel by anchoring the truth of Jesus Christ to two key figures, Abraham and David. Mark is written to the Romans to show you what the servant looks like. Luke is written to the Greek, and he writes his gospel to a man named Theophilus to give certainty about the things that you have learned, that you would have evidence. But when you open the book of John, the book of John is different. All of the events of Jesus' life are out of order from the synoptics. There are these certain things that only happen in the book of John. The book of John is a very personal letter. You have these singular moments in the book of John where Jesus personally interacts with people. Nicodemus is a great example from John chapter 3. The story of these personal encounters, the woman at the well who has this chance to encounter Jesus for who he is. But John builds his gospel differently. He builds his gospel from the ground up with these major theological categories in fact, all of what we're going to talk about today has very little to do with you and I, so be encouraged. But we need sermons like this. We need truths like this. We need to anchor our theology in the heavens about who God is and what he is like and what he does, independent of who mankind is, independent of what creation is, and that's how John begins his gospel. Have you started watching Christmas movies yet? They've already started. People are not. We're already watching, you know, The Christmas Story or Miracle on 34th Street or A Wonderful Life or um, Elf, another Christmas classic. But every Christmas movie attempts to do what John does here in John chapter 1. Every Christmas movie 
Now, no matter what the scope and the arc of the narrative is, at some point during the course of the movie, there's, one, there's a scene, and it's consistent in the Christmas movies, consistent across the entire genre, that they try to capture wonder, don't they? They try to capture this moment of, <gasps> I was trying to think of what, what Elf's is when I was standing over here. I mean, what is the moment in Elf where there's wonder? I'm, I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's the Santa moment. Uh, you know, It's a Wonderful Life is punctuated with these moments of uh, angels speaking about what's going on on earth. But what John does to open his gospel for you and I, really a purpose over the next four weeks for us, is I want the truth of God's word to recapture wonder for you. I want that for me. Because Christmas is this invasion of the heavenly into our lives, into the world. And what we need to recapture again together as a church and as Christians in a year that seems filled with a lack of wonder, maybe filled with cynicism, filled with uncertainty, filled with all sorts of things that capture our heart and mind. For just a moment, I want us in the book of John to recapture the wonder of the word made flesh, okay? That's what we're gonna do. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that there would be a sense of wonder in this room this morning, that as we open the word of God, that the truth of God might penetrate the areas of our hearts where there's unbelief and uncertainty, where there's sadness or grief or fear, that we, for these few minutes as we open John chapter 1 and look at these five little bitty verses, might be blown away with God. That we might come and experience the awe and wonder of the Word made flesh. So, Father, reorder our hearts and minds, our emotions, our feelings our thinking, our speaking, all of those things, that you would get glory here this morning and that we would just stand in awe of who you are. We make our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, John chapter 1. Y'all there? Now, this is going to be hard. I'm going to make you do your first cross-reference in like three seconds. So for you to prepare for your first cross-reference, find the very first page of your Bible, Genesis 1, 1. And we'll talk about those two places in the Bible here as we get going. All right? Let me tell you how this text is going to lay out. It's five verses. We'll be real quick, I promise, because I'm always real quick. Uh, well, here's what you're going to see. John isn't going to mention the name of Jesus Christ until three weeks from now. Okay? But this entire text is about Jesus Christ. But, but as I said, John builds his theology in these major categorical ways. And that's how he's going to do it from the beginning. You're going to see the Word of God. That's how John's going to begin his gospel. He's talking about the Word. And you're going to see the Word and its relationship to three things. You're going to see the Word and its relationship to God. You're going to see the Word and its relationship to creation. And then you're going to see the Word and its relationship to men, mankind, humans, okay? The Word related to God, the Word related to creation, and the Word related to men. You with me? Here we go. 
John 1, verse 1. Let's see the words relation to God. In the beginning. All right, full stop. Where have you heard that before? If you are not familiar with your Bible, or you open your Bible and you go, I'm going to read it from the beginning to the end, you're going to come across that exact phrase in your Bible. Let me tell you where it is. You got to guess? I'm going to guess it's in Genesis 1-1, isn't it? The, book, the, the Bible opens with this, um, with a categorical phrase. It's a description of God in action. Uh, and in fact, this verse in John 1-1 predates Genesis 1-1 because it speaks about God and who he is. But what you're going to see here is, is when the word is, where the word is, and what the word is. Okay, so I gave you the big three. Here's the sub three in your first John 1, 1. When is the word? Well, the word is at the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, if you cross-reference John 1 with Genesis 1, when is the word? It'd be a hint. It's in the beginning. I'm a brilliant Bible scholar. I know that. But that's where he locates the word. He locates the word before everything. In the beginning of everything. Now from Genesis 1-1, before anything is anything, God is. And what John does is begin his gospel letting you know that before anything is anything, the word is. In the beginning was the word. Now that's an important phrase in the way that John writes it because it lets you know that there are certain things that have happened before the created things. You with me? Now, we're talking in major theological categories here, right? Before things are, there was something that was, and in the beginning was. Let me just read you some scriptures that talk about things that happened before everything was. You don't need to turn here. I'll just read these. Here's what John uh, 17 says about Jesus. Jesus is saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 17, 24, later on in that same chapter, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus seems to think, and that's what John will go on to prove here, that he was before there was anything. Ephesians 1 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1 says that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I believe the Greek literally says before times eternal. 1 Peter 1, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So when John begins his gospel, he says that there was a beginning of all things, and before that beginning of all things, there was something that was already. And in the beginning was the Word. Now the word in Greek is this word logos, L-O-G-O-S. It's where we get Biology, life words. Theology, the words about God. Psychology, right? Words about psych. Whatever psych, and it's the mind, right? Words about the mind. In Greek thought, uh, it was typically um, 
communicated as if the word was the ultimate reason, the ultimate ideal, if it was. So they had the idea in Greek thought that there was the ultimate reason, the ultimate thought that governed all things, the ultimate idea that was over and in and all through things. But you, being a good Bible scholar, would recognize in the beginning was the word, and you would connect the word to what in Genesis chapter 1? Well, you would connect the word to what God does to create all things, right? Typically in the Old Testament, the word is uh, semi-personal. Uh, if you think about Isaiah 55, where God says, my word will not return to me void without accomplishing the purpose for which I intended to accomplish, right? That Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declaring the wonders and the glory of God, that all creation, Psalm 19 says, speaks. But here, John begins to paint a picture and develop an idea that the word is more than power, It was in the beginning. It was before there were all things. So John, taking the word from your Old Testament idea, makes the word in action. It's in, in its creative power. And you know from Genesis 1-1 that nothing was created apart from God's word. Okay, now watch what else John says here. In the beginning was the word. That's pretty good for like six words in, right? That's when the word was. And the word was with God. Well, where was the word? It was with God. That Greek word with is interesting. It's not as if there are two things next to each other, like the burger with fries or the chicken sandwich and the waffle fries, right? They're not with each other. The word with carries the idea of in company with. It's some, some translations, some folks who write about this talk about a face-to-faceness about the word with God that there's a relationship between God and the Word. So when the Word was, was in the beginning. Where the Word was, was with God. And third, you have the Word was God. Now, I was preparing for this message, and I got to about 20 minutes before 10 o'clock. And one of our elders, Steve Lindemeyer, came up to me and said, I was taking my mother-in-law back uh, from Thanksgiving, on Friday, and I got a phone call from a Charleston number that I didn't recognize. So I picked it up. Steve Lindemeyer, being the kindest man on earth, takes phone calls from Charleston numbers. I don't do that. But Steve Lindemeyer, being ever ready for an opportunity to evangelize, picked up the phone. And on the other end of the phone was a Jehovah's Witness. Really, Steve? Yep. And she started talking to me about Jesus. And I started asking her, well, who is Jesus? Is Jesus God? And she said, oh, no, he's not God. Would you believe that we're preaching and teaching John 1 this morning, and we have an opportunity from one of our elders to have an evangelistic conversation with somebody who's committing the Arian heresy, who will call you on the phone and teach you heresy that was one of the rejected heresies of the first seven ecumenical councils in church history. And they take it from this verse right here. Jehovah's Witnesses say, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was a God. They take the deity of Christ and they make it secondary to full and complete Godhead. John will not let you do that. John declares 
from the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is fully and completely and co-eternally God. He's not an emanation. He's not a force. He's not secondary. He's not a created being. The Arian heresy says of Jesus that there was a time when he was not. John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, you have these major categories, right? Word, God, creation, beginning. All of those things begin John's gospel. Now, look at verse 2 for just a minute. And I want you to do something. Put verse 2 next to verse 1 and see there's one singular word that is not included in verse 2 from verse 1. Just one. God is there. Look at it. Let's read it backwards. God is there. With is there. Beginning is there. The and in is there. Was is there. But there's one singular word that's not there in the beginning. What is it? He. See, if you don't have John 1, 2, you have God who's creative and powerful and before all things and who exists in relationship with himself, or at least there's a bi-unity. In Genesis chapter 1, you have God creating the heavens and the earth and the spirit hovering over the face of the deep. You have God and spirit. In John 1, you have God and word. You with me? This is, this is theologically important. I'm trying to blow your circuits here this morning. This is the goal of John 1. And then you get to John 1 verse 2. And our room and anybody who's watching online is filled with he's and she's, right? If you don't have John 1 verse 2, you don't have a God, a word that is personal. You ever watch Star Wars? Remember Star Wars? You are watching The Mandalorian? My whole family is loving The Mandalorian right now. In Star Wars, the main power is what? The force, right? It's transcendent. It's impersonal. That's not this. John 1 verse 2 says that the word is now personable. It's to be apprehended. It's to be engaged with. It's relatable. You with me? That the word is not an idea. The word is not just a power. The word is now relatable. It's not just, God is not just transcendent up there somewhere, but God is also imminent. You know what imminent means? It means apart, involved, connected to. That's why what John will say in a few weeks, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He comes into and among his creation. So verse two, he was in the beginning with God. He's a person you can know and be in relationship with. Is that good news? That we don't just have to guess about God somewhere up there who's far too high and lofty to engage with us mere mortals down here. But you can know God. Now, side point. Are you noticing, too, about John chapter 1, how God has to speak and declare to you who he is? It didn't say mankind dreamed up this idea about God. John says that God existed before there was any creation. God existed in relationship with himself before there was any creation. And God now has to speak for you and I to understand who he is. He has to move toward you and me. How is he going to do that? You got to wait till Christmas, right? Look at verse 3. So that's your relationship, the word's relationship to God. He's with God. 
He's face to face with God. He is God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That seems, wouldn't you take some points off for redundancy here? What's the point of this verse? Why is, you know, incidentally, Steve, I didn't say this, but this is one of the proof texts, wherever Steve is. This is one of the proof texts for why you can't translate 1 verse 1 as the, in the beginning the word was a God. Because you've got two categories in verse 3. You've got uncreated things. Here's the point of the verse. Uncreated things. Created things. You with me? Uncreated things, God and the Word. All things were made through Him. Who's Him? The Word. All things were made through the Word. And without the Word was not anything made that was made. So we've got uncreated things. And created things. If Jesus is a created being, he created himself. You with me? That's like a laugh out loud theological joke. (laughs) That's so good, Steve. That's the point. There is no created thing that has come into being. Let's read it again. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Keep your finger in John there. We're done with Genesis. Take that finger from Genesis. And keep your finger in John, and take your other finger, and turn to your right to Colossians chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Locke, Mark, June, John, Acts, Romans. Keep going. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Okay. Look at Colossians 1, just verse 15 here. You all there? Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 says that he is the exact imprint of God, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, let me, let me apply this. I know we're trying to get the idea of wonder, but do you notice how uh, the holidays and the Christmas season and family comes with all sorts of expectations, all sorts of ways that you plan and think and desire for things ought, how they ought to be? And one of the things I recognize in myself as we come to holidays and the Christmas seasons is that inevitably I start to uh, put my hands uh, onto my expectations and desires, right? And Colossians 1 and and John 1 verse 3 has this way of prying my fingers back in the Christmas season and reminding me that all things are for him. You remember that? Don't you need to be reminded of that? That all things, every relationship, every expectation, every dollar I have, every hope in my vocational future dreams, you and I enter into life. Bill Beverly entered into life in 1920, and he stepped out of life and into eternity in 2020. 
and the purposes of God and eternity and creation crossing. For us, we need this reset, don't we? We need this moment where we go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Christmas means that the God of the heavens incarnated as a baby, and Paul just said that everything was made through him and everything is for him. Everything? All things are for him. What's the goal of our church? That all that we do is for the glory and the purposes of Jesus Christ. That's pretty good. How about that? How about we do that? How about we align our hearts and dreams and hopes and visions for doing all that God wants us to do in the seasons and years that we have because all things are meant to serve his purposes and his design. See, this is why theology starts to ground you. It starts to make you ask questions about where you are in your marriage, in your vocation, in the places you live, in the things that you are being called to, in your gifts and dreams and ambitions. And you start to ask, God, if everything is for you and through you and for your sake that you might be seen, God, how do I order my life in such a way that you are seen and you are the purpose of my fill-in-the-blank? You with me? And John begins saying all things were made through him. Not one thing was made that has been made apart from him. Which means God lays hold of creation and says it's mine. It will do and accomplish my purposes, my design, for my glory in my time. So there's the words relationship to creation, total, complete sovereignty, total, complete authority. Go back to John 1. Now, you with me? We all right? We tracking so far? Let's look at verse 4. Here's your relationship to man. Here's our third major theological idea. In him was life. See how he or him has been mentioned four times in two verses? What's John trying to get you to pay attention to? He's trying to center your theological vision on a person, isn't he? He's trying to move you from eternity past the Trinitarian Godhead to the creation of all things, to a singular him. In him was life. What a great truth. Just sit on that for just a minute. In him was life. What, what, you know where life, life happens on, um, I think it's day three, right? You have the beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth, and the spirit hovering over the face of the waters. Everything's dark, right? You don't have any creation whatsoever other than heavens and earth. And you have the separation of the waters, the waters above, the waters below. And then you have the creation of light. I think that's right. I could be wrong. You can read it later. It's in your Bible. God says, let there be what? Light. No life can happen apart from light. Would you agree? 
Photosynthesis can't happen. Your retinas don't work. Your irises don't work apart from light. You can't get your vitamin D without light. Nothing can grow. Nothing can live. Nothing can uh, perpetuate itself without light. And now John has moved from Trinity, creation, him, life. And his life, the life, was the light of men. They're essentially equated ideas. Psalm 36 says, uh, in your light, we see light. The picture is God. You know, every time God creates something, what does he call it? You read Genesis 1? In the beginning, right? creates light, and he, light, he called the light Good. He called the light good, right? That's what God does. Good for who? Good for God? No. God doesn't need light. His creatures need light. His creation needs light. Everything that God does in the creation account is for the sake of somebody else. He's the ultimate servant. He creates all of this thing to impart and to give true life and light to the things that he creates. He's a provider and a sustainer. That's the point of Hebrews 1 when it talks about Jesus upholding the, word, upholding the world by the word of his, upholding the universe, I'm sorry, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Jesus continuously serves his creation to uphold it, to support it, to care for it, to tend to it. We are not deists. You know what a deist is? A deist is someone who believes that God kind of started the lawnmower engine on creation and then walked away. Where it's running, that's up and down and sun and moon and stars and seasons and all that is going, but God's not involved. He's away somewhere. He started the thing and kind of infused it with life and then he's not engaged at all. But here the beauty of John 1 verse 4 is that now Jesus is now the light of men. This characterizes really throughout the book of John how Jesus sees himself. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. He challenges the Jews to believe in the light while they still have it because there's coming a time now when darkness will fall and the true light is taken away. So this idea and this theme, right, what happens in Genesis 1 is that light is God gives his light to all of creation. And then all of creation is able to live. Now similarly for you and I, when the word is made flesh, he now gives light to you and to I. He gives life to you and I, that not only is the word the source of all of our physical life, the only reason that my atoms are not falling completely apart is because of the, Jesus upholding the universe by the word of his power. The only reason I have physical life is because of God. The only reason you and I have spiritual life is because of God, and particularly because of the word made flesh. You tracking with me? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. And Paul's referencing the beginning of all creation. Then he goes on to say this, and he says, uh, he has shown in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, I was teaching, I think it was on the Sermon on the Mount, and there was a guy right back there in that corner. Uh, and I was talking about Jesus being intellectual light. That all true, if Jesus is the creator of everything, then Jesus and the word of God and God is the ultimate reference point for how you and I understand creation, ourselves, our struggles, the seasons, the world, history, all of those things find their ultimate meaning in light of an ultimate reference point in the word of God. You with me? And I was talking uh, about something I asked my wife about. I can't remember what I was preaching on, but it was, man, it was powerful. It was fantastic. And I, uh, I said that there is no true intellectual fulfillment apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can't understand life intellectually unless you have a reference point. We're just meaningless thoughts down here unless your thoughts and your mind and your academia is connected to creation, to truth, to righteousness, to God, to, a, to the word made flesh. And this guy shouts out amen in the back. And I went, whoa, that was a good point. I didn't even know, I wasn't even coming. I didn't even think it was a particularly strong point. But he stopped me after the service and we were out here talking in the parking lot. And he says, you are absolutely right on. I live and I work, I'm a PhD in uh, somewhere in the UNC uh, educational system. And he said, I am around people all day long who have no ability to be able to make sense of their academic pursuits because they don't know Jesus. And in a sense, that's what John is saying here. That Jesus is true light and life to the seasons and the situations that you and I find ourselves in. And what is so sad to me about me is that so often in my life, I act and react as a functional atheist. I hesitate to bring God and the truth of Jesus into these situations. I know Jesus applies in the situations and the ambitions and the vocations and the money and the life and the marriage and the parenting and all those things that I have going on, but I have this tendency to, to hesitate to bring Jesus in, to go, Jesus, what is light and life in this situation? If you are the creator of all things and all things are meant to serve your purposes and design, God, what do you want me to do and understand and know here that I might have light and life from you? What a promise in verse 4 that he is life and he is the light of men. Isn't that why we preach the word of God? Isn't that why we counsel the word of God? Isn't that why we teach the word of God to our kids? Is that we believe in him as light and life. He's the source of meaning and understanding and true physical, spiritual life. I am the way, the truth, the life. One more, look at verse five. Here's his, his next uh, relationship to mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. John uses almost this identical phrase in John chapter 12 when Jesus says, The light is among you for a little while. Let him who walks walk in the light, lest the darkness overtake him. Man, this is such great news. 
not only is the word light and life, but the word of God has no opposition. Uh, I think, you know, to reference, I'll make this sermon about mentioning Steve Lindemeyer multiple times. But Steve Lindemeyer mentioned, I think he was teaching, you might have been teaching Light of the World uh, when we were a church plant back in the day, back in like 2015. And we used to meet over at Burke High School. And Steve had this illustration that people in our church would come up to me and tell me about years afterwards. It was such a great illustration. He brought up a shoebox. And uh, he held this shoebox and he said, I'm going to let all the darkness in this box out into the room and it's going to flood the room. I went, what a great illustration, Steve. And he did it, right? And he opened up the box and all the darkness flooded into the room. Right? No, it didn't. But the box was full of darkness and it didn't flood the room. Why? Because the light overcomes the darkness. Darkness is, is nothing but the absence of light. When light is present, no matter how much there is or how much little there is, it always drives away the darkness. You believe that? You, we, you believe that when we stand up as a church and we look to the word of God and we preach the truth about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, that people can move from spiritual death to spiritual life? You believe that? You believe when people understand who Jesus is, that they can move into a situation of, of real, true, authentical, authentical. <laughs> That's great. Real, true, authentic, spiritual life. Because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the presence of Jesus, what, what happens when Jesus is in the presence of the demoniac? What happens when Jesus begins his public ministry at church in the synagogue, and there's a man bound by uh, a demon, and the demon cries out, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus has zero opposition in his ministry. Disease doesn't stop him. Demons don't stop him. The lame don't stop him. He is always recognized for who he is by the demonic. Darkness recognizes the light. So, how do we apply this? That's my point. You don't. You teach it. Do I understand it? No, I don't even understand it. But I teach it as the text stands because this is who God says he is. This is who the word is. The word of God was in the beginning. You understand that all things were made through him and for him and that we would respond appropriately that we would be men and women who long for the coming of the Son of Man. And as we turn our hearts and minds to you, would you remind us of the life and the light that is in the person and work of Jesus Christ? He's our hope. He is our salvation. And how good you are to come and be a part of creation, to send your Son into the places where we live, when our lives and hearts are so often darkened by unbelief and despair and discouragement and a year like 2020, would you shine again in our hearts and remind us of the person and work of Jesus?
It's in his name that we pray. Amen.